Well, welcome to Horror Court Trash Over the Show. It discusses all the masterpieces and trash pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And it's the first original versus remake of 2021. Is it really? It is. I mean, of course it's it is. January. It's the end of January. Um, yeah, so we have done the classic combination of a fantastic original and a not so fantastic remake this month. Yeah, we, we weren't Just like sure last before watching them, were we, Gary? Why weren't we sure? Well, because... You remember not hating the I remember not so completely much. hating it when it first came out. Like, 2007, I'd have been like, what, 15, 14? Something yeah. like that. So, you know, as a kid who's just first getting into horror, it doesn't seem that bad. Watching it as an adult <laughs> is is a little different. So starting off with the uh, results of your poll, uh, you the, the listeners, we've got seventy six percent in for the original and twenty four percent for the remake. Mm. I'm not going to beat a dead horse, but you know I'm not going to say what I normally say. It's it's a bit it's <laughs> it surprises me. I I do I do think sometimes potentially people haven't watched the original. Uh, when they vote, so they vote for the one they've watched. I don't know. I, I ain't here to judge anyone else, uh, their taste, but um, I completely disagree. <laughs> yeah. With like, the, what, 24%? Yeah. Yeah, I completely disagree with you, I'm sorry. So, starting off in 1986, The Hitcher was directed by Robert Harmon, uh, who also directed The Tender, Day, Highwayman. And lots of films with Tom Selleck playing a character called Jesse Stone. Huh? Yeah. Oh. Never heard of them. I, I'm not sure they're any good, but they, they look Are like... they TV movies? I, I think so. They, look, they that... look like Steven Seagal films. Oh, that, that, like, along that side of things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like they're TV movies. Uh, it was made on a budget of $6 million and it grossed just over $5 million, so it was a box office bomb. Yeah, yeah, it's def- it's got a cult following. Yeah, it's got a massive cult following. Yeah, now. if not a sort of mainstream following, really. And uh, getting on with the trivia, C. Thomas Howell admitted that he was actually afraid of Rutger Hauer on and off the set because of Hauer's general intensity. Yeah, I think... You get some stories saying, I, I think Rutger Hauer is definitely one of these, uh, I don't think full method, but I suppose it depends who he's playing. I think this one he took very seriously, and it does show it is one of his best roles. Yeah, um, yeah. He is fantastic in this. But I, d- I don't think he's generally got a bad rep. No, no. Really. Um, you know, there are actors like Klaus Kinski who have a, a terrible reputation uh, but I don't think Rutger Howard had a, a bad reputation, did he? No. He was just probably just getting into the role. Uh, Howard uh, did a lot of the stunt driving throughout the film, uh, which amazes the crew and even the real stunt drivers. Nice. Uh, in his book, All Those Moments, Howard mentioned how executive producer Edward S. Feldman settled on Sam Elliott for the role of Jan- John Ryder originally. Howard states that apparently Elliott was so scary when he came into audition that Edward S. Farman was afraid to go out to his car afterwards. But Sam Elliott had a scheduling conflict and had to back out of the role. I think it could have worked with Sam yeah. Elliott. Um, I haven't seen him in too much. Uh, what have we seen Sam Elliott I think we've in? only seen him in modern stuff. I don't have seen him in anything. Potentially. Um, yeah, I just know him as the guy with the moustache. Yeah. 
That's how we know most people on this podcast. <laughs> the original script was long enough to make a three-hour movie. Scenes that were never filmed include Ryder slaughtering an entire family, an eyeball appearing in a hamburger, which was replaced by the finger and a plate of French fries, a graphic sex scene between Gal Gaveston, a girl that would have been uh, would have came into contact with Jim before Nash, and Jim and uh, oh yeah, and Jim. And Jim. That's, Last part of that sentence. She was having sex with. And the character being decapitated. But the movie underwent several rewrites uh, which removed the gorier moments. Yes. And. Yeah, people still act. But but people still act like this is some fucking massive gore fest. I'm surprised it's got an 18. Yeah. I am surprised in the UK it's got an 18. I'm, I'm surprised. It does fall under the category of sadistic violence, I think. Even though it's implied. It, I think, yeah, very much uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre-esque yeah. in the fact that it's uh, actually not that gory, but the general general um, themes on display mm. make it an 18. Yeah. Yeah. While performing the last bit of the windshield stunt, Rutger Hauer knocked out some of his teeth, uh, well, one of his teeth, with the shotgun that he had in his hands. Jennifer Jason Lee agreed to do this movie because she wanted to work with Rutger Hauer again. They co-starred in Flesh and Blood together and loved the character of Nash because there was a real person there. Yeah. 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 She's not in it much. No. She's, She's really good at what she has got. She is, yeah. Je- Jennifer Jason Lee's... Emma's already awakening. <laughs> I was about say to say good in everything <laughs> she's in. Um, before a certain point, I suppose. But we... Only Amityville we dislike. That's the only film, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Christopher Nolan has listed this as one of his favourite films. Lovely. Screenwriter... Why the layered female character? (laughs) I know, yeah. Screenwriter Eric Reed said that the inspiration for the film was the Doors song, Riders on the Storm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, It's one of C. Thomas Howell's favourite films that he's been in. Not Soul Man. Well, we don't Is it not Soul Man? Is that not his favourite? No. <laughs> uh, in early drafts of the script, John Ryder had been described as a skeletal in nature, and so actors like David Bowie, Sting, Sam Shepard, Harry Dean Stanton, and Terrace Stamp were all mentioned and considered originally. Imagine David Bowie in this role. That would have been great. It's the sec- that's the first of two times we're going to mention one of these films, including the musician, to make it better. Yes. Don't ruin the surprise. <laughs> Entertainment Re- Weekly ranked this as the 19th scariest film of all time. And I'd agree. Uh, I mean, I don't know about 19 specifically. specific. Not specifically 19. <laughs> I completely agree. This but it is, is. definitely the 19th <laughs> scariest film. Not 19th, but it is one of the scariest films of all time. Yeah, I'd say top 20, absolutely. Yeah. For the role of Jim Halsey, the producers originally mentioned Matthew Modine. Uh, Modine, Modine, Tom Cruise, Emilio Estevez, and Charlie Sheen. Yeah, that's just the Brat Pack, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. I think uh, I think C. Thomas Howell is Brat Pack, isn't he? I don't know. Is he? Yeah, I think so. Uh, this is one of the few movies to which podcast regular Roger Ebert gave zero stars when he and Gene Siskel denounced the movie for its violence. <laughs> On the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, Carson asked them if they were opposed to censorship, and Ebert replied, of course, the film should be made, it should be shown, and it should not be attended by anybody. I can't... 
the thing is, I agree with that. That no one should have seen the film? No. I agree that there shouldn't be such... All the films should be made. Yeah. Um, and if it's too much, then people shouldn't go see it. Yeah. But people should be free to make the choice. What annoys me is that Roger Ebert seems to have this really snooty attitude to certain films. Yeah. Um, and it, it does annoy me. And it, it, it's pretty much like Roger Ebert. Yeah, I, I, he was a film critic. But, you know, if he if he was never going to like the film, just don't watch it. Yeah. Just, 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 I'm just not going to watch this. This all makes you question if he did watch it. Because how can he complain about the violence in this film? Exactly. It's really exactly. not that violent. No, it's not. Executives tried to have the death of Nash softened and toned down. And the studio even suggested softening her death by having a funeral. The filmmakers refused to back down and silver screen executives uh, finally relented at the last minute. I'm glad they did. Yeah. Because it wouldn't make any sense having a funeral. No. Like, this film is... It is one sequence of events. Yeah. Straight through. No yeah. different periods of time. No weeks or whatever. This is one day. Yeah. And a night. Uh, over... No, it's one day, isn't it? It's across one day. Yeah. And that's it. Maybe two days. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because she dies at night time. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, 20th Century Fox ultimately rejected the project over the budget as the... And... They saw it as a straight-out horror film. David Madden also admitted that he would have argued to soften the movie. There were some people at the studio who thought it was pretty gross. <laughs> Ed Feldman and Charles Meeker optioned the movie, play, uh, paying Eric Reed $25,000. Uh, major studios like Universal Pictures and Warner Brothers passed on it, uh, as did smaller ones like Orion Pictures and New World Pictures. Many executives liked the script, but balked at the girl being ripped apart scene. Uh, at least two studios were willing to consider making it, but only if Robert Harmon was replaced. However, the producers had faith in their director and stuck by Harmon the, the whole way. The way people have spoke about this film, you'd think it's a fucking human centipede. You really was. This really? is 1986. By this point, we'd seen Friday the 13th. We'd seen The Nightmare on Elm Street. We'd had Suspiria. Yeah. You know, how was this shocking? In comparison to Nightmare on Elm Street, this is pretty subtle. You know, um, I suppose Nightmare on Elm Street had a funeral, um, so maybe that softened it. <laughs> but you, you know, we had fucking had, Dawn uh, of the Dead before this exactly. point. You, when you talk about big studio mm. films, yeah, and with big studio backing, I suppose Nightmare on Elm Street wasn't a big studio film, but it made money. Hey, it made money, so big studios you you would usually jump on that bandwagon. Yeah. So I don't know why they had such an issue with this. Yeah, maybe because it, it felt more real. Well, that's the thing. I mean, this is often referred to as um, an action thriller. Mm. It's a horror film. I, I think there's it no is. denying the fact yeah. it's a horror film. Maybe if they had took it to studios and said this is a horror film we're making, is all being ripped in half. Maybe it would have been less shocking, but the fact they were they're approaching it as an action thriller. Mm. But then again, action films in the eighties were fucking violent. Oh my god, yeah. Terminator was released just before this, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it is weird. It, it is a weird one. Was Robocop before this? No, 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 no. no. Robocop was after. Uh, well, but they I suppose they're all sci-fi films. They're fantasy films. Yeah. Whereas this. And it, to its credit, feels very real. Mm. This could happen to anyone. So I suppose it just adds that extra edge. 
He should have uh, added big explosions to CGI effects like the remake. Maybe, <laughs> but maybe he should have been a robot. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it should have been a Blade Runner spin-off. <laughs> One of the producers said that the uh, movie's commercial failure was because of a lack of violence and that Nash's death should have been shown. That, uh, that's the difference, though, isn't it? Yeah. That, yeah. That's the difference. Actually, the audiences wanted all of mm. that. Um, but I don't know. I, I ain't the well, one with the money the producer, the producer said uh, there's one... There's... Uh, there's other gore in the movie, other killings, but this is the main one. It's the motivation for the hero. You can't show all the killings we showed and then not show the main one. It's cheating the audience. And it's true. I've, I've always thought... It's, it's one of those things. You feel like you've seen it, though? Yeah. I, I, I don't feel like... When you really have a connection to a, the characters... Mm. Um, Nash isn't in the film that much... But when you when you have a real connection to the characters and into the situation, when something like that happens, you don't need to see it at all. No, it doesn't have no. to be so over the top. It's actually what you don't see and you make up in your own mind that's more effective. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, it's not like the effects are terrible in the film. There aren't no, many of no. them to really judge. Um but an effect like that potentially wouldn't age too well. No. Either. No, and, and this is exactly what I was saying to you yesterday after we watched it. As a film, because it isn't filled with special effects and there's no uh, dodgy dialogue like you'd get in some 80s films, as a film, it could have been made last week and it'd still be believable. Yeah. It's it's aged gloriously mm. over the years. Yeah. It really has. And it, it's still just as effective to this very day. Um. Whereas the remake made in 2007 has aged worse, somehow. Yeah, yeah. The ending scene of John well, Ryder... Yeah, it has, because the effects haven't aged too yeah, well, and we'll exactly. go into that. The ending scene of John Ryder going through the windshield from the bus was recreated in the Demi Lovato music video for Confident. Was it? Apparently so. Oh. Was that set in a prison? I suppose uh, so then, yeah. Yeah. And before we move on to 2007, would you like to discuss the LGBTQ plus following this film now has and why? I think there's definitely a case for John to be seen as a gay man. Yeah. Um, not a particularly flattering portrayal of gay men. No. <laughs> um, but it was 1986. Um, I think a lot of that is within... Rutger Hauer's performance, mm. the looks he gives yeah. uh, Jim. He pretends to give him a hand job. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I think Nash's demise is absolutely out of jealousy, mm -hmm. which is why she gets the most intense death. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I do think it's a sort of cat and mouse it's a it's a cat and mouse mm. film you know if you um, took the violence out of it and you just had Rutger Hauer flirting with C. Thomas Howell throughout the whole film and then at the end of the film C. Thomas Howell runs away to go back to him and instead of shooting him kisses him you've got a romantic drama yeah that's that's the way I look at it yeah a very um before Hashtag me too drama. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But you would get a romantic drama. Yeah. 
But then there's there's ways where I think some people have taken it as as uh, a look at gay panic, and obviously the AIDS uh, pandemic as well in the eighties, and how you know around this time you also had films like Fright Night doing the same sort of thing where a villain comes in, he's the symbolism for homosexuality. People start dying as soon as he arrives. Um, mm. you know, essentially, Rutger Hauer could be seen as the AIDS pandemic coming after C. Thomas Howell and, well, just killing everyone around him, basically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, there, is, there is that way to look at it as well. I think, I think you could look at it that way. Um, I think it's just uh, a, a very warped obsession that yeah. John has with Jim, which is why John never actually kills Jim, because, you know, he know, I don't think he ever intended to kill Jim. Mm. Um what he actually intended to do in his sort of um, masochistic way mm. is he chose Jim to be the one to kill him. Yeah. Um, and in, in some warped sexual fantasy. That's how I view it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's 1986. They're not going to be over, uh, overly portraying that aspect of it. But that's mm-hmm. how I read it. Yeah. And, you know, what a wonderful film to for us to be able to read into and have differing opinions on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I don't think it's... Even though there's those theories out there about the gay panic thing, I think it's very much embraced by the LGBTQ community. Um, like, there's a lot of podcasts I've listened to where people have really praised it and stuff. Uh, amongst the cult following, I think there's a lot of gay fans. Yeah, I think so. I, I think... Uh, we were able to look at it as a product of its time. Um, we can look at it from a modern perspective and understand um, that not all of it, if we view it in a certain way, is going to fit into our ideals now mm. in 2021 um, and still be able to enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, if you look at, you know, Rutger Hauer's performance as a romantic one there's some camp value there yeah, too absolutely but moving on to a very straight film very masculine straight manly uh, I don't know Kid Rock style film 2007's <laughs> The Hit Kid, Kid Rock is the manliest <laughs> man you can think well, of well I don't know it's very like American guns explosions yes very. no offence to our American listeners please keep listening um <laughs> Yeah, so 2007's The Hitcher was directed by Dave Mayers. Uh, he's Myers. done Myers, Mayers, whatever. He's done a lot of music videos, iconic music videos. He's done some absolutely fantastic music videos. From like the, the two. Well, actually, he's still working. He's today. still working to this day, yeah. He did um, Ariana Grande's Positions. Yeah. Um, he's worked a lot with Pink. Um, he he did Normani's Motivation, which is a fantastic music video. Yeah, uh, and as we previously discussed when we did our Nightmare on Elm Street um, <coughs> original versus remake a year ago, um, the 2000s had a habit of getting... I mean, obviously Nightmare on Elm Street was 2010, but just coming off the back of that, they had a habit of getting music video directors to make horror films, and mm-hmm. especially horror remakes. And they end up like this... He also directed a film called Foolish and a Keys of Christmas YouTube original with Mariah Carey and Ciara. <laughs> Which I'm sure is amazing. I'm sure. Uh, and it's, that's <laughs> it's a nice rated film on IMDb. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, it's made on a budget of $10 million and it grossed just over $25 million, So this was a success. And a lot of these remakes are successes. Yeah. Do you know what music video directors are? Cheap. Yeah. When they're trying to make their big break into um, proper feature length cinema, they're probably going to take a pay cut. Yeah. And, and they never come back and do any other films after. No. Most of the time. Yeah. Uh, some of the um, but then, but then these films make a profit. Yeah. You know, and I, I can't think of many of these remakes that didn't turn at least uh, a mild profit. Can you no, think of No, I, I genuinely can't. I, no. I genuinely think they were, mostly all of them were successful. Yeah. And I think what you get is, it, it, it's what they want to do is to make money by enticing a new audience mm who aren't interested in the watching the original no. because it's an old film. No, exactly. Um, and it piques the interest of fans of the original who go and pay $15 to go mm. see it. I think it's absolutely awful, but you can't actually get refunds for shit films. But the thing is, it didn't always, it didn't always go bad. I mean, this, this whole craze started from The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is a good remake. Yeah. Um, again, it, this is made by Platinum Dunes, Michael Bay's company, um, who did who produced a lot of the remakes, most of them really. Um, but then you know, Amateur Horror that was a good remake. Um, it, there's there's examples of good remakes, but mostly in the two thousands, it was just full of these shitty, fucking music video esque, Michael Bay esque, explosion filled films that didn't need to be this bigger scale. But this is what happens. You know, you have one, two, three films that start a craze and as it goes on and on, it gets worse and worse and worse. And, you know, b before you know it, it's just dire and it dies well, yeah, out. Yeah. And then it finally, people stop watching mm. it because the last four horror film remakes they've watched were shit. Yeah. Um, you look, well, what's our running, is it, if it's a horror film from 1989, it's going to be shit. Yeah. You know, essentially, we've watched so many because not only was the slasher craze pretty much over, Nightmare on Elm Street brought it back up slightly, mm. but then by 1989 it had died a death again. Yeah. yeah. And all you had was awful sequels or just really shitty slasher films because all the good ideas had been taken up. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Sean Bean's in this. Yes. <laughs> Spent a little, he spent a little he spent a little time uh, with his young co-stars so as to distance their relationship and make himself seem more unknown and menacing. He believed this would drive the chemistry in a more realistic fashion. Spoiler alert, it did not. Um, it would probably have worked with better actors. Um, <laughs> but you can't polish a turd, can you? Rutger Howe was offered a cameo, uh, but declined for artistic reasons. However, <laughs> since said in the press that he is yet to watch the... Re I assume before his death. I don't know if he ever watched this. Um, of course, Rutger Howard died like two or three years ago now. Um, he was yet to watch the remake, and according to some of his friends, he shouldn't bother. Yeah. I wonder who his friends are. I wonder if they're actually... Uh, I wish they would have warned me. <laughs> for the greatest piece of trivia I've ever had to read on this podcast, we're also one of the saddest. The saddest. Jessica Biel turned down the role of Grace Andrews. Now, that's, that's a little sad. Jessica Biel's a good actress. She was good in Texas Chains of the Massacre. But what's really sad is Britney Spears was considered for the same role. It could have been her second film 
on a road trip with a killer. Yeah. This could have been a Crossroads sequel. <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about, go back and listen to our Crossroads episode. Uh, imagine. You imagine Britney Spears in this film. Yeah. Jumping out of an exploding van. Yeah. I don't, I don't know why she didn't... T- I don't know why they just didn't <sighs> go with it. Would have been fucking she, incredible. Uh, probably would have cost too much money. Oh, it definitely would have. Yeah, she would have cost too much money. So they got the, the girl from One Tree Hill. Speaking of which, the song that plays at the beginning of the movie, an absolute banger, Move Along by the All-American Rejects, is also in the TV show Sophia Bush is most known for One Tree Hill. Okay, so Move Along is a banger. <laughs> it's a great pop-punk yeah. song. Um, was it from the early 2000s? I swear 2007 was a little bit late. No, no. Because... No? That all came about after Green Day released American Idiot. That's when you start getting songs like that. Oh, and bands yeah. So this would have been... Move Along, I think it was 2004. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, great song. Still played maybe a little too much. It is get... played for about 20 <laughs> minutes straight in this fucking film. It is ridiculous. <laughs> it does not go on that long. A little too much. <laughs> Despite being credited, Eric Reed did not work on a screenplay. Oh, that's... Uh... That's a little sneaky. Who? Eric Reed, the guy who wrote the original. Oh, I see. Or Eric Red, I think I may have been reading that wrong. Apologies. Um, director Cameo. Dave Myers, or Myers, whatever, is in the film, and he plays the real John Ryder. Oh, okay. He is on the driver's license. He's on find. the driver. Oh, I see. So before we get into our rant about the remake, would you like to tell us what happens in the original? I certainly will, and I've been lazy again this month, and this is from Wikipedia, but I think it does it justice, so. Uh, Jim Halsey, a young man delivering a car from Chicago to San Diego. Excuse me, apparently to Instagram, a young hunk. Oh, young hunk, (laughs) excuse me. A young hunk delivering a car from Chicago to San Diego spots a man hitchhiking in the West Texas desert and gives him a ride. Excuse me. The hitcher, John Ryder, excuse me, is brooding and evasive. Excuse me. When Jim passes a stranded car, Ryder forces his leg down on the accelerator. Ryder states he murdered the driver and intends to do the same to Jim. Threatening him with a switchblade, because it's the 80s and everyone has a switchblade <laughs> in the 80s. Terrified, Jim asks what Ryder wants. He replies, I want you to stop me. When Jim realises that Ryder never put on his seatbelt and the car's passenger's door is ajar, he shoves him out the door. Relieved, Jim continues on his journey. Journey? Journey? You also missed a very important part out. No, I did. Where they, meet, where they uh, drive to the construction workers. Well, I thought we would do that you in not... the analysis. Oh, okay. I was going to say, have you not got your own note about I that? I have got my own note about that. <laughs> Carry on. Relieved, Jim continues on his journey. When he sees Ryder in the back of a family car, Jim tries to warn them, but becomes involved in an accident. He later comes across the family's blood-soaked car and vomits. At an abandoned gas station, Ryder corners Jim, but simply tosses him the keys he took from Jim's car. You need to grow up. <laughs> After Ryder leaves with a trucker... Jim encounters him again at another gas station where the truck nearly runs him down as it crashes into the pumps. As Jim flees, Ryder causes the station to explode. At a road... 
Are you serious? <laughs> At a roadside diner, Jim meets Nash, a waitress, and calls the police. He finds a severed finger in his food and realises Ryder is present. The police arrest Jim as Ryder has framed Jim for his murders. Including homoerotic podcast regular Gene Davis. <laughs> Who? Gene Davis from Cruising and Ten to Midnight. Ah, oh, he is, yes. He's always in these gay films. He is. Though the police doubt his guilt, they lock him up overnight as protocol. When Jim wakes, he finds the cell door unlocked and all the officers dead. He panics and flees with a revolver. At a gas station, he sees two officers, takes them hostage and speaks to Captain Esteridge, the officer in charge of the manhunt for Jim. As Esteridge convinces Jim to surrender, Ryder pulls up and kills the two officers. The patrol car crashes and Ryder disappears again. After briefly considering suicide, Jim reaches a cafe where Ryder confronts him. Roy's Cafe. Roy's Cafe. It was Roy's Cafe. <laughs> Roy's Rolls. After pointing out Jim's revolver is unloaded, Ryder leaves him several bullets and departs. Can I give a quote from that scene? Oh, of course you can. <laughs> Jim says, while staring intensely at, uh, at John, So help me, I'll blow you in half. And John turns to him with his hand under the table and says, Squeeze the trigger. Because I'm sure as shit going to squeeze mine. Okay, why... Before licking his fingers. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it wasn't as much of a porno as you've just made it sound. <laughs> but yes. Licking was... his fingers and touching Jim's eyes. A, very much a flirtation there. Jim boards a bus where he meets Nash and attempts to explain his situation. After a police car pulls over the bus, Jim surrenders and the furious officers accuse him of killing their colleagues and attempt to kill him. Nash appears with Jim's revolver, disarms the officers and flees with Jim in their patrol car. As the police chase after them, Ryder joins the chase and murders the officers by causing a massive car accident. Jim and Nash abandon the patrol car and hike to a motel. While Jim is in the shower, Ryder abducts Nash. Jim searches for her and is discovered by Esteridge, who takes Jim to two trucks with Nash tied between them with a gag in her mouth. Ryder is at the wheel of one truck and threatens to tear Nash apart. Esteridge tells Jim that his men cannot shoot Ryder as his foot will slip off the clutch, which would cause the truck to roll and kill Nash. Jim enters the cab with Ryder, who gives him a revolver and tells him to shoot, but Jim is unable to do so. Ryder, disappointed, releases the clutch, killing Nash. Ryder is taken into custody. Esteridge gives Jim a ride, but Jim, being <laughs> believing the police cannot hold Ryder, takes Esteridge's revolver and vehicle to chase down Ryder's prison bus. Ryder kills the deputies and leaps through Jim's windshield as the bus crashes. Jim slams on his brakes, sending Ryder through the windshield and onto the road. Ryder challenges Jim to run him over, which he does. As Jim leaves his car to observe Ryder's body, Ryder jumps up and Jim shoots him repeatedly with a shotgun. Jim leans against Esteridge's car and begins smoking as the sun sets. Why are you laughing? You were rubbing your leg the entire time you were reading that in a really seductive voice. No! <laughs> this is the gayest episode we've done yet. Yeah. And we did like five episodes of Pride Month. <laughs> Did you think that was a seductive voice? <laughs> I think it was, yeah. I mean, it helps me concentrate to rub my leg. I'm, I'm glad you pointed it out to a bunch of people who can't see <laughs> what I'm doing. 
Well, I'm sure it'll happen then. Um, imagine what was going on. Um, okay, so... <laughs> 2007's Man Leader Hitcher starts with uh, the mandatory sign that every 2000s horror remake has at the start, giving you a fact, giving you statistics. According to the US Department of Transportation, an estimated 42,000 people are killed on highways every year. Lovely. Uh, we then get a CGI rabbit being run over. Why would they give... Yeah, but not by a serial killer. <laughs> in accidents. <laughs> Do you remember... Wasn't it when, it, when a stranger calls, like, 5,000 babysitters are killed every year or whatever. <laughs> get the fuck out of here. CGI rabbit gets run over, because that's necessary. And we are launched into what feels like an MTV teen drama in the 2000s. As we see Jim pick up his girlfriend Grace's move along by the All-American Rejects. Plays for about 10 to 20 minutes. It doesn't stop until it's night time. It does. It's still going when it's night time. <laughs> A CGI dragonfly is splattered on Jim's car windshield. What the fuck? Why is there so much CGI in this already? Yeah. But it's like really cheap looking CGI. Really cheap. And it's, it's one of those things that doesn't just hasn't aged very yeah. well. Jim can't wait to meet Grace's friends. He's nervous as to whether they'll like him or not. No one gives a shit. John Ryder appears in the middle of the road for a jump scare. One of many. Jim wants to speak to the hitchhiker, but Grace tells him to leave. The car won't start as John walks up to the car, but it starts just in time, and we get a moody close-up of John's face as another car approaches him. Cause to let us know he's the bad guy. Yeah. And that that's why it's raining really heavy and it's dark. Yeah. Because that makes everything scarier. Jim has no phone signal, obviously, and is still feeling guilty about not picking the hitcher up. John and Grace go to a petrol station. Jim and Grace go to a petrol station, but John does arrive there shortly. Uh, whilst Grace is having a piss, uh, Jim and John have a chat about what happened, and John asks him if he'll give him a lift to a motel. Technically, he wasn't hitchhiking. He asked him for a favour, and he gave him a lift. He wasn't... They didn't pick him up when he was hitchhiking, so why the fuck is this even called the hitcher? Yeah. Jim obviously says yes. John tells Jim that Grace is good-looking, and that's how long he's been fucking her. <laughs> Jim notices John's wedding ring and asks how long he's been fucking his wife. Oh, the dialogue in this film. John isn't married and wears the ring so that people think he's trustworthy. John breaks Jim's phone, gets a knife out, holds it to Grace's head. And John tells Jim to say, I want to die, just like the original. And Jim says he doesn't want to die. And instead of just shoving him out of the car like the original, because that's probably what people would do, he spends about five minutes kicking him out of the car. Yeah. Yeah, with um, what's her name's help, Grace's yeah. help, kind of. We get a mandatory two thousands horror remake dream sequence, uh, which involves a jump scare of John smashing through the window and grabbing Jim. Oh God, we do, yeah, yeah. There is, n I can guarantee, there's not a single two thousands horror remake without a fucking dream sequence. Without a dream sequence. We now get, from here you could almost see the sea, by David Gray playing whilst Jim and Grace have a romantic stare at the sunrise, because that's necessary. A family drive-by with John in the car, Jim and Grace try to warn them, but dramatically get ran off the road uh, by an incoming lorry and down some hills and over, over another thing and over another thing, and it goes on for about ten minutes. Yeah, because it, everything that it takes from the original film, they have to overdo it. Yeah. It has to be bigger. When actually it's unnecessary. Yep. 
so they find the car with uh, with the dead pe- with the dead family inside, and uh, unlike the original where they were just dead, we get another jump scare when the dad of the family slaps the window. Yes. And they get in the car and drive off, uh, leaving a "Will I Go to Heaven" book behind. I don't, know what, I don't know what that was about. Oh, we killed a kid. Here's a book that says, Will I Go to Heaven? Oh, edgy. John starts ramming them and decides to disappear. Excuse me. He just disappears. Uh, you know. He does, yeah. He, he's very much got Michael Myers' mystical powers in yeah. this film. They drive to a diner and, and just ask for paper towels without saying what's going on or asking for the police. Acting completely suspicious in the meantime, because everyone's an idiot in this film. <laughs> Grace notices John whilst looking outside from the bathroom window. We get a prolonged sequence of her staring at a door. Uh, and the dad of the family dies in the arms of Jim. Police officers uh, jump out for a jump scare and arrest both Jim and Grace, who lies and says that she was the one who called the police. No, she was not. No. Grace in interrogation is in an interrogation room and Jim's in a prison cell. Uh, and they're both interrogated whilst acting all defensive, looking like they actually did it. Yeah. John yeah, draws... She, she acts particularly Oh, defensive. yeah, yeah. John draws a smiley face with blood on the other side of the interrogation room mirror. No reason at all. No reason. Grace finds the bodies uh, of the police officers who have now all been murdered in complete silence. Uh, somehow, John has just murdered everyone just in, without making a single noise. Jim asks John why he's doing this. John tells him he's a smart kid and he'll figure it out because they couldn't be asked to write him in cows. <laughs> yeah. Grace goes to let Jim out of his cell and he jumps at the bar for a jump scare. Grace and Jim escape with very flattering close-up camera angles at the bottom of their chins. Uh, Grace and Jim have an argument about Jim deciding to give John a lift when they're interrupted by John throwing a car at them. Yes, yeah, literally. Like just what the film needed—a domestic between the two, uh, being interrupted by just this car falling. Yeah, from a cliff. I mean, we think that was John. That that could have just been any random passerby. Like, oh, shut the fuck up! I was gonna say. <laughs> I was like, it was probably might have been me. The police. Uh, we see them discovering the bodies. We're introduced to Lieutenant Estridge now, um, and they discover the smiley face blood drawing <gasps> because John's an idiot. Grace and Jim encounter a spider and a scorpion whilst hiding in a shed. I'm pretty sure by 2007, the the, the jail should have had um, CCTV. Yeah. I mean, in 1986, maybe not. Um, but by 2007, there, there should have been yeah. some cameras in place for them to know who killed all the police officers. Lieutenant Esrich decides Grace and Jim didn't kill the police after looking at their mugshots. Mustache, uh, mustache cop finds them and tries arresting them, but they hold him at gunpoint and steal his car. John shoots the cop whilst hiding. The police think Grace and Jim did it and chased him in a police car. Grace and Jim speak to Lieutenant Estridge, who hits his radio on the wall a few times and continuously tells him to pull over, even though he's just said he thought they were innocent. And then we get closer by Nine Inch Nails playing as John drives up in his fancy new car. Very stylish. Takes out, he takes out all the police officers effortlessly and shoots the tires out in Grace and John's car, Jim's car. It's such. I like the song. Um, I think if it was an instrumental version, it would have worked better. But the song is about <laughs> sex, <laughs> and you're using it in a car chase slash 
car crash sequence. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> car being driven by Sean Bean as well, of all people. Sean He's not exactly Bean. a sex icon, is he? Grace? <laughs> I, I, th- I think you're... Um... Wrong there. Am I? Yeah, he's definitely got a following. Has he? Yeah, so, okay. um, hunk of horror. Horror, horror. Fair enough. Grace and Jim run up to a motel, still holding their guns whilst running in, and break into a room without anyone seeing them. More moody play, more moody music plays whilst they have a saucy moment in the shower. Grace falls asleep watching the birds. Why could they not just... Why did we have to have a saucy moment between the two where we see her underboob? Like, why did this have to happen? It's so unnecessary. It really is. Grace falls asleep whilst watching the birds. That is a major issue alone. That's so rude. Someone feels her leg and wakes her up and she says, I'm so horny. John gives her a jump scare, jumps on top of her and says, I'm fucking horny too. <laughs> no one fucking talks like... Rick Howard certainly did not talk like this. No. <laughs> Grace runs into the bathroom. John tries getting in for a while but gives up quickly. She quickly puts on her... Well, not quickly, but she takes a while putting on her boots she, and skirt. She does not quickly that, put them on. That boots and skirt combination. Yes. <laughs> And goes outside, waving her gun around and shouting for Jim, even though there's a serial killer on the loose looking for her. Yes. <laughs> Jim is tied in between two trucks. What a shock. Gender swap. Grace holds a gun to John. He tells her to get in the truck. He tells Grace to put the gun in his face. And he says, it's your chance to kill the man who's going to kill your whiny boyfriend. Uh, honestly, everyone's rooting for you to do it anyway. He is a whiny bastard. Go for it. And then he says, I want to die. Just like he told Jim to say. <sighs> the police arrive and tell Grace to drop the gun. She does it and Jim drives, John drives forward, tearing Jim in half. Thank God. And After we see this, it in all its... We do. We see sh- every second of it. Aged, badly, CGI. Yeah. So 3D-esque. Yeah. <laughs> and um, after this happens, after Jim is torn in half, the police start shouting, someone call an ambulance! Might have to stitch a bit late again. for that, Herm. <laughs> the police reveal the real John Ryder is missing and show his identity. They can't trace who the hitcher is. Not John is in a prison cell staring at drawings and writing that says, living on the edge of a broken dream. Live to live another day. Very profound. Very profound. Esteridge interrogates Not John and asks why he did it. Not John says, why not? Esteridge reveals Not John now has the death penalty. Esteridge informs Not John that his handcuffs are new ones that loosen after a while before he tightens them up for him. I hope that doesn't come into play later on. Cops discuss how one of them has taken his daughter to get one of those customised teddy bears for her fifth birthday because they're about to get killed and the director wants you to feel something for them because one has a fifth five-year-old daughter. And a builder bear waiting for him. Yeah. Not John, who is in the van with the uh, police dad, uh, breaks his hand and squeezes it through his now loosened handcuffs. Yeah... Yeah, he's got super strength. Or I don't I don't know. It, he would have to really do some damage to his hand. But then also for that to work. They're a little more loose now, like he was warned they were gonna be. Yes, of course. 
Nut John somehow slits the cup in the back of the police fan's throat. Yeah, I don't know how. No idea that, how. Super sharp fingernails. He shoots another one and causes the van to do a big action movie Michael Bay flip. <laughs> Just like Transformers. So, this obviously causes Esteridge and uh, Grace's car to stop. And Grace says, I'm done running. Imagine Britney Spears saying that. I know. Esteridge is like, you don't know what you're doing. She turns to him, shotgun in hand. Uh, no, sorry, just a normal gun in hand at this point, And says, yes, I do. Pouts and walks away with the, with the gun only to get locked in a police van by not John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Imagine Britney Spears doing that, though. Yeah. I said to you, didn't I? It was giving proper, uh, no thanks, I make my own destiny <laughs> vibes. Not John shoots leaking petrol from the police van as Grace grabs a shotgun. The police van explodes whilst Not John shoots Esteridge in the head. Grace, in the police van that has now exploded, uh, kicks the van door off and jumps out in slow motion without a single scratch or burn mark. <laughs> yeah, she's surprisingly <laughs> resilient considering she's just been blown up. Grace shoots John's vest a few times to get him onto the floor, and he says, "Feels good, doesn't it?" <laughs> she says, "I don't feel a thing." <laughs> she then shoots John in the head and walks off as how how we operate by Gomez plays. Yeah, which I only discovered through this film. So if one good film, uh, one good thing came from this film is that I actually quite like that song, <laughs> and I, I actually I've been listening to a little bit of Gomez today, and they're all right. So there we go. I'm very pleased. But the rest of the film shite. Anyway, <laughs> so um, going into our analysis, cinematography, soundtrack, and scares. Before I do, would you like to uh, read out your homoerotic notes? My homoerotic notes? What do you mean? Like the moments where you made notes specifically because of how gay it was. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, John holds a knife to Jim's crotch at, and they're stopped by some construction workers. And he's trying to make, the construction workers trying to make um, small talk with Jim. And he notices John's hand at Jim's crotch. <laughs> what does he say? He, uh, move on, sweetheart. Yeah, he's like, get going, sweethearts. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, so that's very homoerotic. Uh, John ramming Jim in the ass Of his car. How crass. He's his, uh, yeah, he rams Jim's car from behind. <laughs> And then he, like, when they're in the, um, uh, later on in the film, when they're in the diner, he licks, is it pennies? Yeah. He licks some sort of coin and puts them on his eyes. Now, I'm being a bit thick here, but I feel like that is some reference to a death ritual in a, in a, a religion or a culture. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Did not make it any less gay. No, no. <laughs> well, it's the fact that he licks them beforehand very seductively. <laughs> but I, I, my thing is, throughout the whole film, I think Rutger Howard was very aware mm. of that um, homoeroticism. Yeah. 
I think he was very aware of it and he played into it wonderfully. Yeah. Because it adds an extra layer to the film, adds an extra layer to his character. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's very intriguing. It's, yeah. It allows him to make what could have been a very... Not a dull role, but a very um, by-the-books role yeah. of a serial killer. And make it into something that's much more. I think it's very much like Candyman in that sense. Mm. Where there's the cat and mouse, you know, romance almost between the two. And um, Tony Todd's wonderful performance in Candyman Mm. adds so much to that. The same way Rutger Hauer's does in The Hitcher. Yeah. Uh, also, the cop who, um, at Estheridge, uh, when he's driving Jim home, uh, he tells Jim that he doesn't know what strange stuff is going on between him and John. Mm. Yeah, he does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We all know what strange stuff is going on. So <laughs> And also, it, it's um, at the end, doesn't John throw handcuffs at Jim? He throws handcuffs at him and he rubs the gun around his face. Yeah. That's meant to be his dick. Um, <laughs> so moving on to cinematography, soundtrack and scares, because we can't compare homoeroticism between the two films, so it only happens in 1986, so it wins by default. Yes. Cinematography, soundtrack and scares, I mean, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert, for everything here, the originals win everything, there's no way the remakes win a single thing. What the original does so wonderfully in its cinematography is... It incorporates um, in so many of the shots mm. of Jim and Jim's car. It, it sh- it's a long shot. He's shot from a great length a lot through the film. Yeah. Particularly when he's driving or he's on the road, yeah. of course. When, he, when he's inside, it's different. But it incorporates this vast, empty landscape Mm. and sky you know yeah but each time it's there to emphasize that jim is alone Mm -hmm. and there's you know um what's the word i'm looking for isolated isolated thank you very much he's isolated yeah and that's what a great film does yeah it doesn't have to keep telling you something. It can show you. Yeah. it. This film survives on minimalism. Yeah. It, it really does. And, and I said this to you, and I said it in my review on Letterboxd, I genuinely... There's not a second of this film I would change at all. I think this is a flawless film. Um, it's, it's within its use of cinematography. It's within its use of the soundtrack. Because the soundtrack is rarely there. But when it, it does kick in, it's noticeable because it's a great score. Mm. It's a really good score. It's used really effectively. The scares are so sharp. Like, I mean, the realism of it all, you know, the, the, it's not unrealistic at all. No. Um, you know, the the small moments of violence we get, they just kind of wake you up a bit to the, the point that, you know, this guy's in a very real situation. This guy's not holding back. You know, he, he is in danger. Yeah. Um, and, you know... The, the whole truck scene is effective because you don't see it. 
the the ending feels like a victory for the audience because they've been kept on edge the whole time until the moment when he shoots John. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's really is some expert filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, and it doesn't rely on jump scares. <laughs> no. What about the remake? <laughs> um, the the remake. I hate the way it's it's shot like every other. Yeah. Well, it remake. it's shot like the Transformers films and Bad Boys. Yeah, it, it, it is a you would you'd think Michael Bay directed it. Mm-hmm. it. It is very much, very much shot like a Michael Bay film. Very dark, a lot yeah. as well. I think they mistake um, being scary or building an atmosphere mm. with being hard to see. Mm. Um, I hate when films do that. I really, I really detest it when they're dark for no reason whatsoever. Um, the Hitcher is very... Uh, the original, of course, is uh, very bright for yeah. a lot of the films. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of um, the scariest moments are during the day. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's what a good horror film does. It's It doesn't wait till nighttime to make things scary. No. You know... Um, unless that's its real intention, you know, like mm. ghosts or like you know the original haunting, it, mm. everything sort of came out yeah. at night. Um, but it doesn't rely on being pitch fucking black. Yeah, when you get films like that, you know, you know, like uh, the haunting, and uh, it's a lot of supernatural films, really, where most of the daytime scenes are people discussing what's happened, mm. and as soon as it gets to the nighttime, it kind of ma- it makes you dread that point. You're like, oh shit. It's night time now. What's going to happen next? This has your edge the entire time because it doesn't matter. It doesn't yeah. matter what time of day it is. Mm. Something's going to happen constantly. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas the remake, like, it's just... I don't... I, I, I generally don't think they were going for a horror film. The horror elements are so forced that you'd think someone who's never watched a horror film has made it and just mm. gone by the rule book. Yeah, and whereas, it's, it's too glossy. Yeah, the emphasis is on the action and like the big CGI and... It's, it's nonsense. Yeah, it it really is. It it, and having moved along at the beginning, I understand on the radio. If there's a radio playing, you're gonna have popular music on. Hmm. But why use a, a nine inch nail song for the the crap? I don't, I just I hate when films do that. I don't get it. Yeah. Just you know. A David Gray song, so we know they're having a romantic scene. We fucking know. Yeah, it, it's it, it's just pure teen drama. Then yeah. it really is. It's just pure teen drama, which doesn't bode well for being a scary and effective horror film. No, no so by a long run, the winner is the original. Mm-hmm. And moving on to characters, we have Jim Holsey, played by C. Thomas Howell in nineteen eighty six. And played by Zachary Knighton in 2007. I always forget how fucking good C. Thomas Howell is in this film. Yeah, yeah. For someone who's not really a renowned actor. No. Let, let's be honest, you know, he's not a household name. No. Um, he does really well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he, he shows a lot of real emotion. You, you know, it's believable. He's terrified of what's going on. There's never a moment where you look at him and as a character and you think... Oh, well, an idiot, I wouldn't do that. You know, the, he makes logical decisions all the way through. Mm. He, he deals with every situation appropriately. Uh, and out of panic. When he, when he does something that's maybe a little silly, it's out of panic. Because he's in this fucking bizarre situation. 
Zachary Knighton knows very much that he's in a horror film. And I say that because he goes for the more dumb horror trope and tropes and just makes dumb decisions from start to finish. Yeah, his character is very bland. Um, I, th- I, I could smell her being the survivor mm. from the very beginning. Um, you know, so it didn't really do much with him as a character. No. He doesn't didn't really go through that many emotions. No. Um, yeah, it's there's whining. no real chemistry no. between him and uh, Grace, and and no chemistry between him and the Hitcher. No, you know. Whereas the original had a chemistry between them. No, when when the Hitcher says that he was he's a whiny boyfriend, he that's he is. Yeah. That's all he does. It's fucking whine and get his top off. Yeah. Because it, it looks like every other beefcake from the 2000s that's in horror films. That's the exact same haircut. Oh, don't. You know? That haircut. He looks like he should have been in One Tree Hill. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, of course, see Thomas Howell as the better Jim Holsey. The love interest, Nash in the original and Grace Andrews in the remake, played by Jennifer Jason Lee in 1986 and Sophia Bush in 2007. Somehow... Sophia Bush being given more to do did not make her a better character than uh, Nash. No, no. And in the remake, Jim is the love interest. Oh, technically, yeah. But it, it's it's a weird one because I think they the filmmaker makes a lot of decisions to make it seem like Grace <clears throat> is the love interest. Yeah. Um, I think it would have been a, maybe a more interesting film or an interesting idea, to have her driving. Yeah. I think that would have been very interesting. Absolutely. If, if you're going to... If, if it's going to have to be a couple mm. at the helm, at, at, at the forefront of the mm. film, then I think having her drive would have been an interesting yeah. thing to Absolutely. do. Absolutely. But no, you try to play it off like it's some sort of fucking big plot twist. Yeah, essentially. I think, <coughs> I think it's a nod to the original. I think he... Um, watched the original and thought, oh, actually, let's get him to be the one that's pulled yeah. uh, ripped in half. Um, and I'm just going to kind of play it out like that's not going to happen. So it's a big twist and a big surprise for those yeah. who are aware of the original film. But also having Grace there from the start takes away from why the original so fucking scary. Mm. Because in the remake... He's got that bit of company there. He's not isolated. He's very much got company. She helps him get him out of the car when he turns into a psychopath. It it really takes so much away from it. Yeah. You know, we get to see them arguing randomly whilst escaping. We don't want to see that shit. No. What's, and what's quite scary about the original one and quite interesting about the characters themselves, including Nash is that they are a victim of circumstance. Yeah. And it very much plays into the idea of fate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Jim himself in the original decides to pick up this hitchhiker. Mm-hmm. What they do in the remake is they don't decide to pick up the hitchhiker. No. And they are... Therefore, forced to take him in the car because of the guilt from their original decision. Yeah. Which doesn't make them likeable characters. 
I mean, you know, eventually we like, actually, it was probably the best decision not to pick him up. But if they had picked him up initially when they saw him, then they probably would have thrown him out the car before they got to the first gas station mm. and could have called the police. Yeah. So what they there be- then become, and I don't want to sound like I'm reading too much into it, but what they then become is a victim of their own bad decision. Yeah. And their own kind of selfishness, not helping someone in need. Yeah. Whereas in the original, these people are forced into this situation, yeah. essentially from his good deed, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And it brings up ideas of fate and such, like I said. Um, but again, makes the original a more interesting uh-huh. film. I also find the character of Nash more interesting than the original. Yeah. In this, in when she kind of involves herself in yeah. Jim, because her, her and Jim have a slight flirtation. But well, that's the thing. I mean, I put, I put love interest. They don't really end up in any sort of relationship. No. It's just a bit of flirting. Yeah. So she obviously fancies him from the get-go mm. and he reciprocates um but nothing becomes of it but no. before she dies but she what she is is a character who doesn't seem particularly happy with her circumstances no. who is in you know this job at the diner she seems a little downtrodden she doesn't seem partic- she's not very happy with where she no. is and, you know, it's not looking too great. For, and she says um, about, is it friends that have gone to college and yeah. she wishes she had and, and such. And um, when the moment arises where she can have a little excitement in mm. her life, when Jim comes into it, however briefly, you know, um, she jumps at the chance. Yeah. And then when she's able to save Jim... Uh, from what she perceives to be a potential m- murder by the police, mm. she jumps at the chance for just for a little excitement. Yeah. You know, and that's a very real person and a very... I mean, I don't think anyone would go around toting a gun like that. Um, but it, you can connect, you can emphasise with... Yeah. Uh, Sympathise with her as a character and why she would make that decision, which unfortunately, ultimately ends up with her dying. Yeah. I mean, all that, and Jennifer Jason Lee provides better performance as well within yeah. that short amount of time she gets. So, of course... Uh, I don't like that hair on Jennifer Jason Lee, though. Well, she is... Either way, she is the winner of that character. And now on to the final character, the Hitcher himself, John Ryder in the original, not John Ryder in the remake, Rutger Hauer in 1986 <laughs> and Sean Bean in 2007. I mean, as we said earlier in the episode, I, this is one of Rutger Hauer's, or possibly his best role. Um, he just, he's fantastic. He really is. In every way, his performance is amazing. Sean Bean goes for this weird accent. Um, yeah, it's it's slightly American-Scottish. and I, I didn't really get what accent he was really going for. No. It, it was unnecessary. Yeah. Just because he was American in the remake doesn't mean he has to... In the original, doesn't mean he has to be American in the remake as well. Yeah, we've just put on a better American accent. Yeah. 
But Sean Bean is... I, I used to think he was good in this one when I first saw it, but watching it now, it's so hard to take him seriously. Because he just looks stupid. Yeah, but he hasn't got much to go on. It's very generic. Mm. The role is very generic. Yeah. The um, things that he needs... The, the dialogue is very generic. His actions are, you know, seen that, didn't it, you know, before. Mm. Whereas what Rutger Hauer does, and the film allows him to do, is that he, he you know, he's not given these massive monologues. No. You know, this isn't Hamlet. What he's actually doing is physically acting. It's in a, mm. a look yeah. or a gesture. Oh, the scene, one of the best examples of that is the scene where he's uh, ramming at the back of uh, Jim. And he's in the back of his car. He's forcibly driving his car into the back of Jim's car. And he's in the car with his, ha- with his uh, head in his hand, looking yeah. bored. Yeah. You know, it's it's eff- really effortless. He, he doesn't... He doesn't look like he's trying. He just—he no. looks like he's good at what he's doing. Yeah, and and Rutger Howard acts. Uh, I find a lot with his eyes. Mm. So he he tends to get the the more the close-ups. Yeah. When he's on screen, you see his face more because he's acting with his face. Yeah. Um, and it, it just works really well. And you know, you have to be a great actor to be able to do that. Yeah. And Rutger Howard does it. Yeah. Very much the winner, and, and overall, it you know, the original wins by Marlos. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it really is. It, it, it's seen as a cult film, um, but I would recommend it to anyone, yeah. even, even people who aren't particularly into horror. If, if you like your thrillers, you would enjoy it as well. Yeah. Uh, I, I just think it's very good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a classic. The remake is not, so can't really recommend that, if I'm honest. No, it's pointless. It's a pointless remake. Yeah. It's the epitome of a pointless remake. Just watch the original. Yeah. So, on to our best and worst of the month. Would you like to go first? Uh, no, you can go first. So, my best of the month is The Happiness of the Katakuris, uh, the Takeshi Miike film, uh, which is everything I love within Japanese <laughs> cinema. <laughs> crammed into one film yeah it's a horror film it's a musical it's a comedy uh romantic it, it's, it's it's insane i've never seen a film like it yeah it's batshit crazy in the, in the best sense yeah it, it, it really is the, the musical numbers are perfectly choreographed there's animation stop motion animation it, it's bizarre it really is it's a film you have to see to believe it mm-hmm. um and um, we've watched some other great films as well. Uh, you know, I have to mention Manhunter. Manhunter. And the film that's going to be your best of the month. Yes. Which I can't remember the name of right now. <laughs> but I recommend it. You know it when Whatever I Chris it. is going to say, I recommend it. Um, the worst of the month is Dream No Evil. You'll recall a few episodes back, a few original versus remake episodes back, where Pigs was my worst of the month. Uh, Dream No Evil is like a spiritual sequel to Pigs. Um, it's not intentionally, not meant to be, but it stars the same actor and it is just as dire. Nothing happens in it. It is literally a guy being brought back from the dead just to be a dick to everyone. Yeah. It's it's fucking awful. Yeah, it really is. It's shite. But that is my worst of the month. I, I knew it would be. Um, I'd, I'd like to give special mention to some other shit that we watched. <laughs> Uh, Paganini Horror had one good thing about it. 
and that was the uh, Bon Jovi rip-off song. Rip-off of Bon Jovi song. <laughs> Um, do you know whose early short films are shit? David Cronenberg's. Um, I thought they were awful. Really thought they were awful. Which is a shame because we watched Crash this month. Yeah. And that was fantastic. That was a contender. Fantastic. That was a contender fantastic. for best of the month. But like Gary mentioned, my favourite film of the month was uh, Mishima. That was also one of mine. The Paul Schroeder <laughs> film. Um, yeah. Just absolutely fantastic. I know it's cliche, but it's a visually stunning masterpiece. Yeah. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was enthralling, uh, expertly acted. Uh, I thought the soundtrack was sublime. Really, just absolutely brilliant. I yeah. loved that film. Uh, we watched uh, Joint Security Area, JSA, yeah. for the first yeah. time this month. Really enjoyed that. Um, that's gonna that's getting released from Arrow Video. It is out now. Oh, is it, it out, out now? now? Fantastic. Yeah. Um, the Witch Who Came From The Sea. Yes. We very much enjoyed that. Um, yeah, very underrated mm-hmm. uh, horror film that isn't really that horror. No. Is it? Um, Grandmother's House was a bag of shit. <laughs> um, grotesque was shite. It's, but you have to see it. It's, um, a it's it's Linda Blair and Tab Hunter in a film about <laughs> murderous punks and a um deformed relative. A deformed relative. <laughs> it tries to be Death Wish, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Last House on the Left, The Hills of Eyes, everything but its own film. <laughs> yeah, somebody watched some films that were quite popular and thought, oh, I'll. I'll take every part of these films and put them into one it doesn't work but it's worth watching for camp value um yes and yeah yeah that that was january overall pretty decent month yeah yeah watched a lot yeah we did i went for a little thing uh during the month as well of watching uh Watching uh, documentaries on writers which we quite enjoyed uh pretend it's a city quite enjoyed on yeah. Netflix, the new Martin Scorsese um, limited yeah. series. I'm not sure how it. much we support the subject of it, though. Oh, yeah, she's a turf, she's isn't a turf, she? Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, but I, I did enjoy it. I did find it very Yeah, it was a good documentary. To be fair. So that brings us to the end of this month's Original versus Remake episode. Uh, next month's Original versus Remake was Chris's Choice. Remember that when we discuss Carnival of Souls. <laughs> <laughs> a masterpiece of an original. Uh, we haven't seen the remake yet, but it doesn't. It's not looking promising. Well, it's Carnival of Souls, and then the remake is Wes Craven presents. Is is it Wes Craven? It's presents Wes Craven presents Carnival, Carnival of Souls. Souls. Now every film that has Wes Craven presents in front of it as a producer or co-producer um, has had terrible reviews. Yeah. So who knows? He was an executive going. producer, so he probably just put his name on it. Yeah. Tuesday, we'll be back. As I mentioned the other day, we'll be discussing The Boy Next Door uh, for our first Valentine's episode. Uh, Jennifer Lopez and her toy boy stalker. This could have been a Valentine's episode. This could have been a Valentine's episode. <laughs> this could have been a Pride Month episode. Could have been, yeah. <laughs> so, if you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe, like and follow anything else. Talk to us about the hitch and which one you prefer and why it's the original. If you prefer the remake, please explain why. 
Uh, Horrorcore Trash over on Facebook and Instagram. Horrorcore Trash on Twitter. Don't forget to check out our new YouTube channel, uh, which is being updated regularly with new clips and trailers and TV spots and everything. Yeah, because I think with podcasts, sometimes you can hear us describe what's going on. But with our YouTube channel, you can see. Exactly. You'll know exactly. what the fuck we're talking about. I'm Gaz 92 on Letterboxd, Gazmo205 on Instagram and gascruz 92 on Twitter. I am ChrisBarker823 on Letterboxd, Instagram and Twitter. Oh, and also, um, between Saturday and Monday, I'm not sure exactly what day it's going to be released, I'm going to be a special guest on the Devil Times 5 podcast. Uh, if you'd like to go and check that out, where we're discussing sea creature films. Yes, so keep an ear out for that. Yes. Um, but until then, we will see you on Tuesday. Bye. Bye.